this episode of the Wagging Tails podcast. On this episode, it's a little bit different because it's just me today, because Jay is feeling a bit under the weather and uh, we need to get this recorded. However, we're going to be addressing a topic, or I'm going to be addressing a topic, which has been on social media quite a lot recently, and that is starving a dog for training. Many of you will have seen a fairly recent article about a puppy who was starved in the name of training. And this puppy went really unwell from this uh, very cruel way of doing training. So I want to address this because this is not the first time something like this has happened. Just a quick Google search and you'll find a whole slew of different stories of dogs that have died. Dogs that have been on death's door and needed real serious emergency medical attention because people have thought that starving them for training was a good idea. So before I go on and go deep into this, I want to make it very clear that there is no circumstance where starving an animal for the sake of training is okay. And as I get deeper into this, those of you that are thinking, oh yes, but we need them to eat the food, will understand why I'm saying this. Now, from the first story I spoke about with the puppy, there was a lot of comments on this uh, social media post, a lot of mixed comments. And as always, when it comes to dogs, there's a lot of arguments. And again, as always, a lot of these arguments come from anecdotal evidence. People saying, well, oh, well, my Border Collie did this, or my German Shepherd did this. And that's a very dangerous game to play because every dog is different. You've got differences in breeds, you've got differences in the individual dogs, you've got differences in their learned behaviour, in their social behaviour, depending on their life. So you cannot paint every dog with the same brush in the same way you can't do the same with people. So with that in mind, I'm going to talk about the thought process of these people that starve dogs in the name of training. And the first part of it is there has been quite a number of ill-advised studies, effectively, where there's been operative studies on behaviour done while they have starved the dogs so that they get consistent food motivation while doing the trials. Now, I get how that makes sense. I do. But the problem there is that when you have an animal, including humans, who are hungry, you're no longer in that normal state that you're normally mentally in. You hear people talking about, oh, if I miss breakfast, I get hangry. Dogs are the same. They might not get hangry, but their focus level will drop. Their ability to solve problems will drop, which we'll touch on in a little bit. And their ability to actually be able to pay attention to what you're wanting can drop. 
So we've got to be aware of this and we've got to think, well, yes, starving the dog might get them to accept the food quicker. It might get them to be more desperate to take the food. But what are we actually trying to achieve? Do we want the dog to be able to perform? Or do we just want the dog to take the food? Now, although I did mention that there's been some poor studies that have starved these dogs on operant conditioning, there has been many, many more over the last 80 years which show the benefits of food training without doing starvation. So there's many out there to take a look at. The next point is that some dogs are more food motivated than others. Yes, that's very, very true. So the thought process of a lot of these uh, people doing this starvation for training is if the dog is hungry, it levels the playing field. It means that all dogs are going to be able to accept the food and be willing to take the food. But you've always got to look at why the dog is not being food motivated. Because the reality of the situation is, is that all animals are food motivated. If they weren't, they wouldn't survive. So knowing that all animals are food motivated to a certain level should tell us that, well, there's a reason that, in this case with the dogs, they may not be accepting food. Whether that be medical, whether that be stress, whether it be underlying anxiety issues or psychological issues that need to be rehabilitated. There could be many, many reasons for this. So that needs to be looked at. And on top of that, there are three different kinds of rewards that are primary rewards that you can give a dog. And that's, number one, being food. But then you've also got affection and you've also got play. Now, if you've got a dog that's not accepting any of these, starving that dog is not going to help because it means that there's an underlying reason for that dog not accepting reward. So that's a very important point, is that yes, some dogs are more food motivated than others, but you've got to understand why before you take any action on their training. So... Then you've got the end result of a lot of those ill-advised studies that I was talking about. And they say that hungry dogs are easier to train. Now this one's a little bit controversial. Because of course, you could certainly argue that hungry dogs are easier to train because they want the food more. And over many, 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 many years of training, that's what's been done. You'll hear trainers saying, bring your dog to class before they've had breakfast or only feed them half of their breakfast. And yeah, that it, it's, it's known that that will get the dogs to want the food more. Of course, if a dog is hungry, they're gonna want the food more. But with that said, there was a study I came across from the University of Kentucky, Kentucky that was done in 2012 by Dr. Holly Miller. And effectively what the study was is they had two groups of dogs. One group was fasted for 12 hours. One group had a meal 30 minutes 
before their study. And they had a series of different problem-solving tasks where the dog had to overcome certain obstacles or problems to get the treat. And they found that the dogs who were not hungry, the dogs that had 30 minutes before the study, they were given a meal, were able to focus much better. They were able to problem-solve much better. They were able to read the humans a lot better, again, probably because they were able to focus better. So that study showed that not being hungry made it easier for those dogs to problem-solve. And thus, when you're doing training and you're using shaping and luring, the dogs are basically having to problem-solve what you're asking them to do. So it would make sense that a dog that's not overly hungry would perform better. This is akin to countless studies that have shown that children that have a good breakfast in the morning perform better at school. So we do need to be aware that there are studies like that out there and that is important. So having spoken about what they're thinking about and obviously I did go into the reasons why those points weren't really accurate. I do want to talk about how we can do this better. So the first thing that we really need to understand when we're training our dogs is about training methodology and what we want to achieve. Now for that, the best thing that I could advise you to do is go back and listen to episode five of the podcast, where Jay and I go quite deep into training methodology. Now, I'll warn you that we do talk about uh, training methodologies that a lot of people find a little bit disturbing, because we do look at all of the training methodology, and although we only use the most up-to-date scientific methodology when doing training, we've got to acknowledge that people still use out-of-date force and fear-based training. So if you're listening to that, do be aware that we do talk about that. I've been told by some listeners that um, they couldn't finish that podcast because of what we spoke about. So go back, have a listen to episode five if you're interested in learning a much deeper understanding on training methodology. The reason I say that is that when you are looking for a trainer... You having a good base knowledge of what to expect means that you are able to ask better questions. And that is effectively the best way to ensure that you're getting the best service and coaching and training from whoever you hire. So with that, I will go into this a little bit more because there's certain things that are particular about training with food that's important to understand. The first of which is primary and secondary reinforcers. So primary reinforcers are something that's innately positive to the dog or to us. So that's why I always talk about food, affection and play. Because dogs will always see food, affection and play as something good. And to be honest, so will people. So let's say that we've got our primary reinforcer as 
food. And the dog is not accepting said food. If the dog is healthy, if the dog is not nervous, if the dog is just not so motivated by the treats, let's say we've got treats that the dog doesn't like, or the dog's just had a big meal and is not hungry, that doesn't mean that we can't do anything. We've got two more primary reinforcers that we can use. So you can use affection. Now, of course, when I talk about conditioning secondary reinforcers, affection and play are slightly more challenging, and I'll explain that in a bit. But you can still reward your dog for appropriate behaviour by giving affection or by playing with them. And that is an absolutely great way of doing things like counter-conditioning or socialisation and things that don't need to have such an accurate pinpoint to the reinforcer. Now that helps me move on to secondary reinforcers. Now on human terms, one of the most interesting things that a secondary reinforcer is money. Because every time you talk to somebody, they think, oh, money, well, that's a primary reinforcer because everybody wants money. Well, if you went into the Amazon and found a tribe that had never used money and you gave them a $1,000 bill, chances are that they're going to burn that or throw it away. They're not going to have any concept of value to that piece of paper because money needs to be taught. The value of money needs to be taught to you as a person so that you understand the value of it. That's the definition of a secondary reinforcer. So one of the most famous secondary reinforcers for dog training is the clicker. So you click at the same time as giving the primary reinforcer and over many, many repetitions, the dog is conditioned that the click is equal to the food popping in their mouth and therefore the click is a secondary reinforcer to show the dog that they have done something correct. Now, clicker training is great. It's something that we use with some clients, but I tend to use more verbal secondary reinforcers like just saying good or yes, because I always have my voice. I don't always have a clicker unless I lose my voice. But believe it or not, I don't lose my voice that often. I just have a husky voice. Unlike Jay right now, who's completely lost his voice. But secondary reinforcers, when they are conditioned, are really, really important. Because it means that you can mark good behavior or you can mark a certain task that you're asking your dog to do really, really accurately. The other thing that it can work with, which is slightly deviating away from the original intent of a secondary reinforcer, is that when a dog is very, very nervous, they may accept food in the comfort of their own home, but they will not accept food when they're out on the streets or if they're in the garden or if they're away doing something else. But because that secondary reinforcer has been conditioned, you can still let the dog know that they are doing something correct. And that gives you a lot more power to a dog that might be seen 
as less food motivated in an environment where they are more stressed. So this is why I always say to people, run through the basics, if you can, with your dog, so that you are conditioning your secondary reinforcer with food if possible, or with play or affection. So why do I say with food, if possible? Well, simply because of the dopamine response in the dog's brain, or indeed our own brains. When you're given affection, your dopamine response kind of goes all over the place. It's kind of like, ooh, I'm getting affection, I'm getting love, this is awesome. When you're playing a game, it can be similar. Your dopamine levels are kind of all over the place. So that means it's not targeted. So when you're eating food, if, if you put a chocolate in your mouth, you get a very short but sharp dopamine hit, which means that when you're conditioning that secondary reinforcer, you can do it a lot more accurately. So you can see if you're doing a dog or you can do it with a person if you really want, but let's continue talking about dogs. If you give that dog a treat, and as the dog eats it, you click or you say good. That's a very accurate conditioning rather than trying to condition something with a more messy dopamine response. And that's why we tend to want to use food to condition it. But that doesn't mean that you can't reward with affection or play. The second concept that's quite important to understand is contra-freeloading. Now, contra-freeloading is uh, best described in humans. All animals um, have contra-freeloading. Effectively, the easiest way to talk about this is when you meet somebody that's on welfare, if they're getting given money for job seekers allowance or or on the dole, if you want to call it that, if they're honest with you, they're not truly happy just taking money for doing nothing. Now, that sounds quite contradictory because you would think, oh, but, I mean, if somebody was giving me money for nothing, that would feel good. It might feel good for a little while, but the problem is, is you're not working for your value. And as a result you're not seeing yourself as creating self-worth. Now, that's a very human way of looking at it. The more basic way of looking at it is if you are being given food and water and shelter without working for it, you don't have any reward response within yourself. And that's why dogs that are just given their food and left out and they don't have the food taken away they just have kibble left out all day every day they will still try to scavenge on walks they will still try to counter surf but dogs that have had their contra freeloading developed and cultivated they will be less inclined to do that now that doesn't mean they're not going to do it because of course if you leave a sausage sandwich on your coffee table and ask your dog not to take it, that's a big ask. You know, it doesn't matter how well trained the dog is. I mean, hell, if you put a sausage sandwich down and left the room and told me not to touch it, I would have serious thoughts about stealing your sandwich. I'm just being honest. 
But with contra freeloading, effectively what you're doing is you're building up that ability to understand that you're working for value. Now, how we develop and cultivate that in dogs would be when you are using primary reinforcers and secondary reinforcers, you're going to be rewarding for every small situation that they do right or for every task that they do that you're asking them to do. Then what you're going to do is you'll start to wean that away a little bit with many, many repetitions. If you do this too fast, it does not take hold the same way. But you start to remove it and remove a little bit more. And then you'll give a slightly bigger reward after two, three, four, five, ten different cues that they are doing correct. And effectively, you'll get to the stage where you're able to give them their meal as their reward. And it's very, very satisfying when you get to that stage. But you've got to build it up. You've got to help the dog understand that they are working for their value. And that is why you're able to do it. If you do it too fast or you try to do it immediately, it won't take effect. And as a result, you're going to always be having to use food every single time, which is absolutely fine if your dog is able to do that and that's what you want to do. The next part is truly understanding more about what you are trying to achieve and understanding your dog. So let's go back to using food with the dogs and let's look at what you need to be aware of if your dog is not showing the food motivation that you would like them to. The first thing is, is there a medical reason? Now, my middle dog, Aramis, who's lying very peacefully beside me right now, went through a stage of not accepting any treats, not accepting any food that we gave him. I remember trying to do training, and that was the first one that uh, highlighted to me that something was up. We were doing simple things. We were literally doing recall training in a field. And although at that stage he was performing the recalls, he wasn't accepting the food. And I had to think to myself, why? Why was he not accepting the food? Once upon a time, he would have accepted it all the time. The first thing that you've got to look at is medical. If you are unsure, if your dog is unwell or if there is something wrong, please take them to your vet and ask them to do a full medical check, blood works, whatever. Your vet might turn around and say, oh no, sometimes the dogs are just picky. Do you know what? You're the client, ask them to do it anyway. If they refuse, go to a different vet. Because the last thing you want to be doing is trying to force your dog into training or behavioural shaping if they have a medical issue going on. And with Aramis, that's exactly what was going on. He had kidney issues and he was needing medication to help him, help him get back to the way he was. And I'm happy to say he's doing much better right now. Um, his allergies are also under control. That's another big one. If your dog has bad allergies they're not going to want to be accepting as much food because they're going to be bothered by their allergies. Just like us, if we are not feeling good, if we have itchiness, sore stomach, sore head, 
aches and pains in our joints. We are not going to want to eat too much. We're also not going to be as patient. So I know this is not what we're talking about, but a lot of people are like, oh, out of the blue, my dog bit me. There was no warning. I promise you, there was a warning. Just because we didn't notice it as humans doesn't mean the dog didn't warn us. If the dog is stressed, if the dog is in pain and discomfort, then we are increasing the likelihood of them snapping and becoming reactive. Just a quick side note there. But again, the same thing applies when you're trying to get them to do training. They're not going to focus on training if they're uncomfortable or in pain. This leads us nicely on to the next one. Is your dog anxious? Are they nervous? And why? So this is when we've got to look at where did you get your dog? Is your dog from a puppy mill? Is it a rescue dog? Did your dog go through something traumatic? You've got to be honest about this. The why it happened, although it's interesting, it's not as important as knowing that it did happen and knowing that you've got to be a little bit more careful when you're moving forward on that. So if your dog has got genetic anxieties or learned or social anxieties, we've got to make sure that you're not forcing them into anything because they're not going to want to take food if they're scared. If I took any of you listeners out into a tiger enclosure and offered you a chip, you're probably not going to take it. And you're going to wonder, what's wrong with Fraser? Why did he take me into a tiger cage? And why is he offering me a pack of crisps? But the point still stands. If you are scared, you do not want to eat. And nine times out of ten, it's going to be something along those lines when their dog's not accepting food in one situation where they would in another situation. And that leads me to the next part, which is, is your dog overstimulated? So some dogs can just get over the top. They get overexcited. They're just, there's so much going on. They're just so excited that when you offer them food, that's more excitement and they just can't contain it. So there's no way they can focus. There's no way they're going to be able to actually train. So although those dogs may accept food or they may not, either way, they're not going to be able to focus on what you're trying to get them to do because they're overstimulated. For those dogs, what I would always suggest is before training, do a burnout exercise with a flirt pole or playing tug or some fetch, things like that, just to burn off a little bit of that top layer of energy before you try to get them to focus more. Now, with both of these scenarios, so whether your dog is anxious or whether your dog is overstimulated, this is when we've got to be aware of something that's popularly known as trigger stacking. But that only really focuses on the negative. I like to think of it more as stress hormone buildup because that's actually what it is. And the metaphor that I like to use actually comes from absolute dogs. Um, with Lauren Langham and Dr. Tom Mitchell, those, those guys are absolutely fantastic. And they're the ones that use this metaphor and I, I like to use it as well. And this talks about a stress bucket. So if you imagine that your stress bucket is in your brain and that's where you put all of your stress hormone. So you've got positive stress and negative stress. And this is where some people get confused. 
the, ob the obvious ones are the negative stress. Pain, itchiness, discomfort, fear. That could be anything from loud noises, fireworks, thunder, you name it. That's all going to get poured in there. Cups and cups of stress entering that bucket. But positive stress is also going into that same bucket. So if your dog gets really excited when you come home from work, that's increasing the stress hormone in that bucket. If you've taken your dog to the beach and they've been running around like crazy, you may be thinking, oh, we've burned off a lot of energy, so that's really good. But it's also putting positive stressors into that bucket, so it's filling that bucket up. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to be aware of it. So... The positive stressors go in there, the negative stressors go in there. So every time there's any stress, imagine a cup of stress getting poured into that bucket. Now at low levels, you've always got an innate level of stress. Everybody does, even when you're sleeping. When you wake up, that stress hormone level pops up into what we like to call the performance zone. So some people and some dogs perform better with slightly higher levels of stress, some with slightly lower levels of stress. So, for example, when I, in my old job, which was now about 10 years ago, I worked in oil and gas offshore. I always felt I performed better when there was a certain amount of stress on me because of the nature of the job. Whereas when I was in the office and I was having to do accountancy reports and all the admin stuff... I wasn't as effective because the stress on it was a lot lower. So that's just me personally. And if you ask yourself that question, I'm sure you'll be able to highlight which area you perform best as well. Dogs are no different. So understanding where your dog sits there means that you can then say, okay, where can I best train my dog? Now, we don't want to play with this too much. It's more about understanding it rather than using it to your advantage because a lot of the time if people try and use it to their advantage they end up overdoing it and the dog becomes overwhelmed so once you get past that performance zone if you overdo it and the dog becomes overwhelmed the dog then goes into anxiety once your dog's in anxiety it's going to continue rising up until that bucket overflows when that bucket overflows that's when you get into the fear response of freeze flight and fight now i'll not go too deep down this rabbit hole because it is a quite a deep one but different dogs and different people and different animals have different speeds at which they go through freeze flight and fight depending on your dog you could end up with a dog that bolts and ends up running out of the house because you've overly stressed them or you could have a dog that turns around and bites you because you have overly stressed them. And it's not fair to blame the dog for this when you are the one that's in control of their daily routine. Okay? So if you know that your dog has a very high level of basal stress, whether that be through genetics or past experiences or whatever else, you've got to understand that you've got to make sure that their day has not been too busy has not been too stressful before doing the training. That's an important factor, understanding that. If you've got a dog that gets overexcited and overstimulated, it's the same kind of thing. Because if you start training that dog when the stress level is quite close 
to the threshold, you'll get a good two or three minutes of training and then the dog will just go completely mental and go into a zoomy state where you're going to have to wait for the dog to settle down before even attempting to start again. Now the thing about this stress level is when a dog caps out, it can take up to 72 hours for the dog's stress levels to return back to their basal level of stress. That was done in a study by Dr. Tom Mitchell in 2012, I think. Um, and that was done after fireworks night or Guy Fox night in London, which, as you can imagine, sets a lot of dogs into a complete overwhelm and they, their stress levels are just maxed out. So with that in mind, if you've taken your dog to the beach, the dog's had a very exciting time, or if anything's happened where the dog has completely topped out, don't try to do anything overly complicated or don't be expecting your dog to be super focused for a good few days afterwards because their stress levels are still dropping. And although that 72 hours is an average, if your dog is constantly getting hit by more stress, then that's going to slow down the settling to that basal level. So again, I'm sharing this not so that you can try to manipulate it for your advantage during training, but just so that you're aware of the fact that life is stressful. It stresses us out, it stresses our dogs out too. Another thing which is very good to note and understand when you're looking at maybe why your dog's not accepting food or how to more effectively train your dog is their activity levels. Now, again, every dog has different activity levels. You can kind of have a good gauge based on their breed, their age, and how much exercise they normally get, their fitness levels, things like that. Kind of similar to human beings in a lot of ways. But activity levels are not just down to physical. If you go to the gym and train and then go for a jog and then maybe play a game of something, you will be physically exhausted. But mentally, unless you have mentally exhausted yourself, you might still be very much awake. So when we talk about reaching and hitting your dog's activity levels, it's got to be both mental and physical. A great example of this is with Border Collies. Personally, I feel like Border Collies are one of the greatest breeds of dogs for the countryside. Those guys are workers. And when I grew up in rural Ayrshire in Scotland, the Border Collies that were around the farms, they would work 12 to 18 hours a day, and they absolutely loved it. So a lot of the time... When you get border collies that are living in more urban environments and in cities, and maybe with families that aren't as active, they've got to put that effort in to hit the dog's activity levels, both mentally and physically. I actually got a wonderful message from a client from a couple of years ago now who ended up moving to Australia and uh, they had a, uh, they have a beautiful border collie called Scoop, and he is now winning agility trials. And they send me these videos of him running around. And I remember this dog when they when he was scared to jump over a pole when he was he was scared of 
like just interacting with some of the kit. And now these guys are at the level where they're winning things. So Scoop's activity levels are being hit absolutely beautifully. And as a result, when he's not doing agility, he's a much more happy and settled dog in the house. It also means that when you've got a dog that you're hitting their activity levels, when you're teaching them something new, it is easier to do because they're not bouncing off the walls with pent-up energy, both mentally and physically. So what do we do when we're wanting to use food for training and having understood everything that we just spoke about, we still want the dogs to want the food, but we don't want to starve them, obviously. We don't want them to be overly hungry. Well, one thing that I encourage people to do, and it's something that I find to be very effective, is to train with their meals, something that is coined as ditching the bowl. And that's effectively using their meals to create engagement, to create problem solving, and indeed for training. This is actually much easier to do than you might think. And some bowls actually do it in an attempt to slow the dog down. So it's, it's very healthy in many ways in the fact that the dogs are then eating slower, they're not wolfing it down, and as a certain result, they're not getting that massive bloat that some dogs get after their meals. So like these slow-feeding bowls that are basically puzzles that the dog's got to navigate around to get the food out, that's like a very rudimentary level of this. But there's other things that are much more effective, like snuffle mats, lick mats... You can play games like the chaos game where you're setting up obstacles that your dog's got to problem solve around and get over that potential fear of the novelty to find their food. Obviously, you do all of these at your dog's own pace. Always set them up for success. And, of course, you can use it for training. So a lot of the time, what I advise people to do is if they can't use the dog's full meal, I'll say do five minutes of training with your dog's food before your dog gets the rest of their meals. You're not starving the dog. You're not making them any hungrier than they normally would be. You're just timing your training or behavioural rehabilitation around those meal times, And that makes a big difference to your dog. Now, we've gone through quite a lot there. I understand that this is almost 40 minutes of me talking to myself, which is actually a very strange thing to do and I hope it hasn't been too strange for you guys as well and I hope you have found it helpful but what I'd like to ask you to do is if you have any questions about this if you feel like there's something that I didn't answer because when you're just sitting talking yourself you've got nobody else to bounce off of so nobody you're not asking each other questions or triggering things that you may have forgotten so please do comment please do reach out and ask questions so that I can answer them later on as well for our next episode we're going to be going back to a guest so just to remind people what we're doing is the episode that comes out on the first of the month is always going to be with a guest the episode in the middle of the month is going to be either just with jri or with an owner who wants to be telling us a story about their dog so with that if you want to tell us and share with other listeners the story about your dog and how your dog changed the way you look at life or change you as a person, please come and share with us 
because it's just a wonderful thing to share with people. And as always, feedback is greatly appreciated. And with that, we'll call it a day. But I hope that you enjoy this episode and the next episodes moving forward. Have a good one.